You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Jamin. If you're new, welcome to Citizens Church. Uh, Turning your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 will be in a lot of verses in this book, uh, but mostly in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, We are a few months now into a sermon series on wisdom, and what we've been uh, trying to do is really take a step towards wisdom every week, and uh, we're going to take another step towards wisdom this morning by being in a book that we haven't been in yet, but it's a really important one. So if there's a big idea that I need to to get out there early on to start with so this makes sense, it's, it's this idea that Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, is wisdom's disruptive voice. Ecclesiastes is wisdom's disruptive voice. Uh, If we were to tease that out by using our imaginations, think about it like this. Imagine being in a coffee shop and all of the authors of the Old Testament books are in that coffee shop. Doesn't that sound exciting? And uh, they are sitting at different tables. They're broken up at different tables by different categories. And let's say the categories are law, prophet, poetry, and wisdom. And you walk into that coffee shop and all the authors of the Old Testament are there and they're all sitting at a table according to that category and here's what that would look like. You would walk in and there's a table labeled law and who's sitting there? Moses and some other people, but mostly it's Moses. And he says, if you wanna learn about the law, if you wanna learn the story of the people of God, I wrote most of the first five books of the Bible. And if you wanna know about any of that, I'm your guy. And he's drinking a cup of coffee and maybe eating some manna and you sit down and you have a seat and and listen to what he has to say for a little bit. And then there's another table labeled prophecy. And it's Isaiah and Daniel and Amos and Joel and those guys. And they say, if you wanna learn about the people of God's failures, and if you wanna learn about a future hope and a faithful remnant, then we're your guys, come have a seat. They're not drinking anything, they're fasting. And they look super intense and they're a little bit mad. And so you sit for a minute, but you don't stay very long. There's another table labeled worship and prayer, and it's David and some of his friends. And they've all got harps and they're singing the Psalms. And they're all drinking pour overs because creatives are picky like that. And you sit and you sing with them for a bit and it's beautiful and it's intimate. And then they get to the imprecatory Psalms and you're like, it's time to go. And then you see a table labeled wisdom. And you're like, I need that. Our church is actually in a series on wisdom. And so I would love to hear more about that. And so you go and you sit down at the table and how many people are sitting there? Three, maybe four. For our time, it's three. And you sit down and you say, teach me about wisdom. And the first person is Lady Wisdom. And she is refined and she's poised and she's drinking one of those lattes that has the perfect heart on top and the foam. And she made it herself because everything she does is best And you look at her and you say, Lady Wisdom, will you teach me about wisdom? And she looks at you and she says something like this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. She would tell you all the things, hopefully, that we've been learning these past few months together. As we have put her words into our own words, she's taught us that wisdom is living in God's world and God's way. It has a posture and a pace and a person. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. There's types of fools, and we need to know those that are in our own hearts. And there's healing for the crushed in spirit, and there's wisdom for the wounded, all of it. Her voice is the voice that we have mostly been listening to these last few months about wisdom. But she's not the only one at the table. 
There are other people there. You turn and you see an older man and he says, hi, I'm Job. And he's drinking straight black coffee because that's what the wise do. And he says, you look at him and you say, hey, I'm sorry. I know a little bit about your story. You've lived a really hard life. And his eyes water and he looks at you and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He has a lot more to say than that. We'll spend more time with Job in the fall. But there's Lady Wisdom and then you have Job sitting at Wisdom's table. And then there's a third person. And that's who I wanna talk about over these next few weeks. He's the one I wanna learn from the next few weeks. He's the teacher from Ecclesiastes and he's older, but he's not as old as Job. He's not refined like Lady Wisdom. He's super intelligent, super thoughtful. He's been uh, through a lot of things. He's done a lot of things. He's seen a lot of things. And he's sitting there and he's drinking tea instead of coffee because he doesn't play by the rules as we'll see. And you say, teach me about wisdom. And he leans back in his chair and he opens his mouth and he just says one word. He says, Hevel. And you're like, I don't know what that means because it's Hebrew, it's not English. And he opens his mouth again and he says, Hevel. And if like, you're like me, you've been in that situation before and you're like, no, 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 it's Jamin, but that's okay. It's, it's like a really strange name. I get it. People mispronounce it all the time. Uh, and he again says, Hevel. In your Bible, it's the word vanity or meaningless is the English word. We'll get there. Then he says something like this, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, for he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And you look confused and you start to ask a question and he disrupts and he, he goes on. He says, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? This is also hevel. How the wise dies just like the fool, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is hevel and a striving after the wind. And Lady Wisdom tries to chime in, and he disrupts her, and he says, For all of his days are full of sorrow, his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also hevel. I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was hevel, a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And Job says, Hey, hold on a second. And he disrupts him, and he says, Job, you know this to be true. There's a hevel that takes place on the earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This is also Hevel. Hevel. All is Hevel. And he sums up his point like this. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is Hevel, a striving after the wind. He goes quiet and you say, hey, Ecclesiastes, um, how did you make it into the Bible? <laughs> like you're, you're kind of a bummer. You don't sound like everyone else. Ecclesiastes is a disruptive voice in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is wisdom's disruptive voice. It's jarring. It's uncomfortable. Uh, one theologian said it like this. Most of the books of the Bible are in the Bible to have a positive influence on your life. They, they play a positive function in your life. Ecclesiastes plays a negative role. It is intended and put in the Bible to disrupt our lives. Zach Eswine, in his book on Ecclesiastes, which is fantastic, he contrasts Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and he describes it like this. If Proverbs is like meteorology, giving us indicators so as to predict outcomes, Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather. Fickle, unpredictable in its ability to rant with storms or breathe easy with the mid-morning breeze. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. 
In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. In Proverbs, wisdom gives us eyes to recognize the storm clouds and what to do in response. In Ecclesiastes, death is a piece of tornado from which no proverbial basement can shelter us. Wisdom's voice in Proverbs, which is where we've been for months, is calculated, it's controlled, it's like meteorology. There's a science to it. Wisdom's voice in Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, unpredictable, fickle. Sometimes it's even like a tornado. It's a disruptive, like if you think about in our imagined coffee shop scene, it's the voice among the other voices of the Bible that sounds the most irreligious. It's like one of these things is not like the other. It sounds the opposite of faith. He sounds like a heckler to our lives. I hated life. The wise dies just like the fool. It's all toil, no rest, nothing to be gained. What happens to the ungodly also happens to the godly. Does that sound like wisdom? It sounds more like cynicism. It sounds like faithlessness to me. It's disruptive. And then would you hear something? According to God, we can't become wise without it. It says something about life and wisdom that we need to hear. It sits forever at wisdom's table in the Old Testament alongside Proverbs and Job. It sits in the Bible alongside James and Jesus and says, you need to listen to my disruptive voice in order to become wise. So I wanna do that. I wanna sit under this disruptive voice and consider what wisdom can we learn? What does wisdom's disruptive voice want to disrupt in me? What does wisdom's disruptive voice want to disrupt in you? There's something it's after in all of us. This is the beginning of a conversation it will take us a few weeks to complete. I will raise questions that we don't answer and won't answer until next week or the week after. So that's my disclaimer. Three questions I wanna answer this morning. Who is speaking? What is Hevel? And where is the wisdom? Who is speaking? What is Hevel? And where is the wisdom? Chapter one, verse one. Who's speaking? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He introduces himself again in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Who is it? Who's the guy at wisdom's table with Job and with Lady Wisdom? The most common answer, the traditional answer, is that it's King Solomon. And he's writing towards the end of his life. And that would make sense. He contributes to a lot of the wisdom books of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, uh, he's a son of David, he's king in Jerusalem, right? Uh, there's another option, it's really interesting. It's an argument made by a theologian named Jenny Barber. Uh, she wrote a book on Ecclesiastes, she's brilliant, and she says it's written as this representative voice of all of the failed kings of Israel. Someone writing as this type of Solomon, she calls it a Solomonic figure. Uh, and he says on behalf of all Israel's kings, here's their collected observations, largely as a people who have gotten everything you could ever want and failed to leave a good life and failed to live a good life. What's important for us is to know this. It's a person, likely Solomon, maybe not. And what's true about this person that we need to know to get the message is they have had all the power in the world and they have had all the pleasure in the world and they've possessed all there is to possess in the world. And strangely, They've had a lot of wisdom, and yet they found it all empty. They failed in many ways, and they're looking back on life a bit jaded and not pulling punches. That's the Solomon story. He asked for wisdom. He got it. With it, he got everything else. He lived for the everything else. He failed to live by wisdom, and now he looks back on life with regret, and he speaks. That's who this voice is. The Bible Project guys, if you're familiar with their videos, they call him Cynical Solomon. What is Hevel? 
The main message of the book is tied up in the word that he repeats 38 times in 12 chapters. Listen for it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The Hebrew word is the word we heard in the coffee shop. It's the word hevel. Hevel of hevels, says the preacher. Hevel of hevel, all is hevel. Your Bible either says vanity or meaningless or futile or something like that. And those are, those are good words. But in studying this, I learned from uh, Tim Mackey, who's with the Bible Project. He's a Hebrew scholar. He has a PhD in the Hebrew Bible. He says hevel literally means vapor. That's what, that's what the word is. It means vapor. It means smoke. It means fog, something like that. And what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is doing is he's using that word as a metaphor to make a very specific, difficult, honest point about life. It captures something that can't be fully understood with the word meaningless or vanity. And it's best understood by thinking about that actual image of vapor or smoke or fog. And he leans into that idea. And out of that idea, he offers his disruptive wisdom. So let's spend some time there. Let's think about it like this. Let's say you drove to work one day and it was super foggy outside. It's like a cloud just settled on the street and there's not great visibility. You have to drive with your lights on and and, uh, you drive slower than usual. You keep distance between you and the car in front of you and it takes you like twice as long to get to work. But you go to work, you go about your day and then that night you're at home and uh, you're talking to your spouse or you're talking to your roommate or maybe you're FaceTiming a friend or something like that and you say, hey, you know, um, it was really foggy this morning on my way to work. And they say, oh yeah, tell me about that. You say, yeah, it took me like twice as long to get to work than what it usually does. And then they say, uh, well, where is the fog now? And you say, well, it's gone. It's fog, it doesn't, it doesn't last very long. And they say, okay, well, can you like show me? Like, can you prove that it was there? And you say, well, no, I mean, it was in the air and now it's gone. And, and now that it's gone, it, like, didn't, it didn't change anything. They say, oh, so did it have any lasting impact at all? And you're like, no, it's, it's fog. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't really change anything after it's gone. And they say, okay, did you bring some home with you? And you say, no, you can't possess fog, right? And they say, that's weird, isn't it? It's weird that you can see it, but you can't hold on to it. And you say, no, 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 what's weird are all these questions. Like I was just <laughs> making small talk, right? But that's the idea. That's Hevel, the morning drive in the fog, the experience of fog is Hevel. It's uh, temporary, it's really short-lived. Not only that, but there's really no lasting impact of its existence. Also, while you can see it, there's something puzzling about it. You can't possess it, you can't take it home. It's like confusingly unpossessable. It's always escaping your grasp if you were to try to gather some, okay, 38 times, cynical Solomon, wisdom's disruptive voice says, that's life. Hevel. Uh, There is a hevel to life in that it's short and there's no lasting memory. A generation comes, a generation goes. It's like fog. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be, he says. It's like fog. It didn't leave anything behind. It's hevel. There's also a hevel to life in that things happen in life that are puzzling and confusing, that don't make sense. He says, uh, he knows people whose lives have been prolonged by their wickedness, and he knows people whose lives have been cut short by their righteousness, and that's really confusing and painful. Life doesn't follow the rules, it's mysterious. You can't grasp it, it's confusingly unpossessable. And for 12 chapters, wisdom's disruptive voice wants you and wants me to grapple with that 
to be disrupted by that reality. Life is like fog. It's temporary. It accomplishes little in the moment and nothing of lasting value. It's visible but confusingly unpossessable. You can't grasp it, then it's gone. Hevel of hevels, says the preacher. What do humans gain from all their toil under the sun? Hevel of hevels, all is like fog, all is like vapor. It's short, it doesn't last. It's confusingly unpossessable. That's life. Life is hevel. Let's pray. Just kidding. Where's the wisdom in that, I wonder? Who's speaking is Solomon. Hevel is fog, it's short, doesn't last. And that's the point over and again. Think about that, deal with that. Where's the wisdom? How's that supposed to make us wise? I I could see how that would make us sad. I could see how that'd make us maybe depressed or hopeless. How does that make us wise? Let me take a shot at it. It'll take us a couple weeks to fully answer that question. Let me answer it in one specific vein. It forces you to consider your life in really raw, honest terms. Tim Keller says it this way. Ecclesiastes is not the place we find answers. It's the rest of the Bible that we find answers. This man's job, cynical Solomon, it's his job to, oh, listen to this, this is so good. It's his job to lay bare the foundations of your life, to push you to the boundaries of your thought to say, why do you believe that? He says, Ecclesiastes is asking us, it's testing us, it's, it's, it's getting us to consider, do we have the spiritual and intellectual guts to really look and ask the question, why, about everything we believe? If the claim, follow the argument, if the claim is life is fog, it's heavy, it forces the question, what am I doing? What am I after? What am I grasping for in life? What really matters in my life? What do I believe makes life worth it? What in life is not fog? What's not hevel? And those are the kinds of questions that make us wise, but we are so easily lulled into not asking them. God knows we need to be disrupted into asking them. Think about this. If someone called you today, today's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday. If someone called you today and said, hey, I need, I need your Monday. I need all of your time tomorrow and it was unplanned, it was out of the blue, and and they say, listen, like I'm gonna need you from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. And you think, gosh, I have a full schedule, and so you tell them, here's what I was planning on doing, here's my schedule, I've got work, I've got commitments, I've got school, I've got kids, I've got a coffee scheduled, or something like that, and they say, yeah, you gotta cancel all of it. In fact, can we do 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. instead? I think I'm gonna need more time. What's your question to them? If you get that call, there's urgency, there's that kind of ask, what is your question? Why, right, why? I mean, it's tomorrow, it's short notice. I've got a whole day planned already. I don't wake up at six for anyone. I had plans, I'm not saying no, but before I say yes, I need to know why. What are we gonna do? What do you need to talk about? What do you need for me? And the why has to be meaningful enough for that kind of yes, right? It would need to be really serious. It would need to be really weighty. It would need to be life or death in some ways. You would only give up that kind of time on that short of notice if there was a meaningful reason to do so. And that's not rude, that's wise. Ecclesiastes is gonna say this. We only ask that question about our day, but that's not good enough to be wise. We need to ask that question about our entire life. You would require a good answer to the why question in order to give up a day, right? 
Do you have a good answer to the why question for how you're living your entire life? All of it. Do you have a meaningful reason behind living the way that you live? And as much as you would demand a good reason from asking you to give up a day, Ecclesiastes demands of us, give me a good reason for why you're living. Why? In a world where there's a lot of fog, where life is a lot of hevel, it's really, really short-lived, it's kind of confusingly unpossessable, why do you live like you do? And the first step to letting the disruptive voice make us wise is to let the book lay bare the foundations of our life so that you and I give an account for how we're living the way that we're living. So take a second. I'm going to let some silence disrupt us for a moment. In all of the hevel that is life, what are you doing? What do you believe? What matters? What's meaningful about your life? And here's the most disruptive part of the book. What he's going to say over and over and over again are that so many of the answers that we just came up with are not good enough. So many of the answers that we gave are themselves hevel, fog. And I don't, friends, mean the answers you know to give. I mean the answers we actually give as demonstrated in how we spend our time and where we give our love. He says this. He's going to offer throughout the book his own story. And he says, would you learn from me? I made a mess of things. I've tried to answer that question and I have tried to find meaning holding on to the heaven. And he says, let me, let me tell you what that looked like for me. He says, I tried making it about pleasure, like so many of us do. I've lived for the vacation, the wine, the party, the house, the vacation house. I've built forests. I had tons of friends, tons of servants. I even hosted my own concerts and, and brought in the best bands. Other kings so admired me that they brought me their own wealth as gifts. I slept with whoever I wanted. I had multiple thriving businesses. Every day was the weekend. I lived for the experience and I never ran out of experiences. That's chapter two. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, he says. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward. And then you know what he says about it? It's a word you've heard a lot. Hevel. It's fog. It doesn't, I've, I've tasted it all and then my mouth went dry. I've tried to fill my life with all and it never was enough. Most people think the vacation doesn't fix things because it comes to an end. Ecclesiastes says my vacation never ended and it still wasn't enough. Hevel. So I tried work and I don't mean like a job that I hate. I mean, I poured myself into meaningful work. I had a good job, a good career, and I was great at it, super successful. And I wanted to build something that I could pass on to others. But then I realized how little I control and how one day I would have to leave all of this to someone who didn't work as hard as I did for it. And what are they gonna do with it? What if they don't enjoy it? What if they don't steward it well? And I couldn't sleep because of it, he says. Chapter two, for all of his days are full of sorrow. His work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is Hevel. While I pour into my work, I worry about my work and one day I will have to leave it to someone and I don't know what they're going to do with what I leave behind. That's Hevel. I tried making it about money and not like an empty kind of money, like a generational wealth. I tried making it about that and I discovered what another philosopher would later say, more money, more problems. <laughs> Chapter five, he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
There's a weight to wealth, and the hungry laborer sleeps fine without it, but the stomach of the rich keeps him up. Chapter five, he says, and he came from his mother's womb. He shall go again naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And you leave, he says. I will leave this wealth behind. When death takes me, it takes my wealth. Well, I can leave it behind for my family. He says, well, yeah, maybe, but you can't control what they do with it. What if they do what I've seen a lot of rich people do, he says, and they use it for evil. That's Hevel. It's Hevel. This one was tough. I tried to live for legacy. I tried to live for family legacy, like a good family name, like a good, strong, generational lineage. Do something that's remembered. It's Hevel. Chapter nine, he says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. He says, one day you won't be around to enjoy the legacy, even if you make one, even if you are remembered, but most likely you won't be remembered, at least not for long. Chapter six, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and then he has no burial. In other words, a family can't fix the soul. And there are no guarantees that the family you have will honor your memory or even grieve your death. Beyond that, there are no guarantees that your memory lasts beyond the family that you know. A generation comes, a generation goes. Look, what is your great-grandfather's full name? Most of us just don't know. Why? Because time outlasts memory. And we all wanna do something of lasting value. We all wanna be remembered well by those we love, but that expires when they expire. And to think that generations later will have any memory of us, Solomon says, that's a pipe dream. That's Hevel. And this was even harder. He says this, I tried wisdom and I found that Hevel. It's like, why are we doing this series? He doesn't mean it's meaningless. He doesn't mean it's un unimportant. We'll take some time on that later, but. Wisdom was not some utility that could guarantee the life he wanted. That's what he means. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? It's just helpful. Pleasure, work, money, legacy, family, wisdom, all good things. There's a way to relate to them that we'll talk about next Sunday that's really important, but all of them have a fog to them it's short, it's little lasting impact, something confusing, it's ultimately unpossessable. And if any of those are my ultimate answer for why I'm living and where I find meaning, it's just fog and you're simply wandering around in life trying to grasp for vapor. Wisdom's disruptive voice wants to lay bare the foundations of our life, force us to consider what meaning is there. Why am I living? Why do I live like I do? Then. As we start to answer that question, it wants to empty our mouth of all the answers that we naturally give, even the ones that seem good. Having a good time, working hard, wealth I can pass on, a good family name, it's all hevel. Living wisely, there's a hevel to that too. Where's the wisdom? Having asked the question, I think here's where the wisdom is. Having asked the question, then having been emptied of our own answers, what the natural response is, is maybe a little bit of um, discomfort, but then to begin to look for something, like hopefully what you're saying and thinking and desiring to come out of my mouth right now, tell us what's not Hevel. Like tell us what lasts, tell us what's 
What's steady? Where will the book tell us what, what is something that I can stand on, something that won't slip through my fingers? And the only thing that fits that description according to Ecclesiastes is God. God. That's part of the point. One of the purposes the book serves is to show how pointless life is if the material is all there is. The way he says it throughout the book is life under the sun. Theologians said it is the strongest critique of secularism and secularized religion in history. If you don't believe in God, a lot of the books of the Bible play defense. They give a defense for God. But this book goes on offense and says life under the sun if there's nothing more, whatever meaning you've contrived for yourself. It's just fog. And he holds up the unavoidable reality that time and death deteriorate all meaning under the sun. All meaning under the sun. And he holds us accountable for being intellectually honest about how empty our answers are and how cheap our meaning is if life under the sun is all there is. And he holds us accountable for if the answers we know to give actually match the way that we're living our lives. In this book, what happens is human self-sufficiency is stretched for all it's got, and it's not enough. It's found wanting. And the disruptive voice wants us to feel that and feel that discomfort so that we search amidst all that's frail and fleeting for something that's solid and stable so that we can stand on something that's not hevel and point to it and say, this is why I'm alive. This is why I'm living. Let me offer an example that I think ties this all together. Johnny Cash died in 2003. That was a hard turn. Stay with me. In 2002, he recorded what was one of his last songs. It might have been his very last song that he recorded. And it was a song called Hurt. Uh, it wasn't his song. He didn't write it. It was a cover of another band's song. He covered a song by Nine Inch Nails, which was strange for him. Here are some of the lyrics of this song. What have I become? My sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. If I could start again a million miles away, I would keep myself. I would find a way. One of the last songs he recorded. It's the last song he won an award for. Why? Why this song? You may not appreciate his music, but he is a historically accomplished musician. He's an icon. He ascended to the heights of his industry. Awards and money and shows. He could have written his own song. He was a good songwriter. He had written better songs than this one for sure. The song is brooding and it's, it's plain and it's weird. But he gets these lyrics from his producer who says, you should think about covering this song. And he reads them and he decides this is how I want to go out with these words. Why? Well, here's what he does. He's very intentional. He goes and he records the music video for this song in the Johnny Cash Museum called House of Cash in Nashville. And it's this house that is filled with his awards and all that he's accomplished. It has framed records. It's got guitars. It has pictures of sold out concerts. It's a monument to his life's work. And here's what's true about it when he filmed the video. Everything was dated. The sign outside said closed to the public. You could tell that no one had been there for a while. There are broken pictures on the ground. Time had done its work. It is very clearly the museum in honor of someone who few people care to honor anymore. 
and sitting in his own museum, surrounded by his life's work, he sings, you can have it all. My empire of dirt, I'll let you down. And in the video, he sits at an empty table all alone as an old man. The table's full of food and all the chairs are empty. He's all by himself and sitting at that table all alone as an old man, he sings, everyone I know goes away in the end. Throughout the video, you see these clips of a young, vibrant Johnny Cash at the top of his game, starring in movies, packed concerts, and then immediately it goes back to the old man sitting alone who can't even lift his hands without shaking. And he sings, what have I become? It's as if it's lifted straight out of the book of Ecclesiastes, truly. He looks around at all that he used to find so much meaning in, and he says, it's fog, it's fading, it's not lasting, it's heaven. If I could start again a million miles away, I'd keep myself, I would do it differently, but I can't. I only have this one life, and that's it. Then, towards the end of the video, in between the images of him on top of his game and him shaking at the table, and in between all of his awards in his life are images of Jesus. Jesus on the cross, Jesus dying for the sins of the world, and they kind of come out of nowhere. It's not a Christian song. None of the lyrics point to Jesus, but it's this subtle, powerful point that he's making as a man who became a Christian later in life. He says, my life is fading. My work is over. You can have my empire. All that matters of my life, all that lasts is Jesus. He comes to grip with his own frailty. He comes to grip with the fact that he himself is just fog and he points away from all that is passing away and points to something that will remain. He says, you've seen my awards break. You've seen my museum fade. You've seen my body age and weaken. Let me leave you with the part of my life that will never go away. Let me show you a part of my life that will last. It's Jesus. The book of Ecclesiastes, wisdom's disruptive voice, please lean in. It invites us to start singing that song now. At the end of life, all that will matter is all that will remain and all that will remain is Jesus. Live by that wisdom now. It reminds me of a poem by a British missionary, C.T. Studd. He says, give me, Father, a purpose deep, and joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, only when life will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that is part, part of how this disruptive voice makes us wise, that our hands would open to the parts of life that are fog, that they would open to the things that we try to grasp but can't possess. And in being open, our hands would learn to hold more tightly to Jesus. He is not hevel, he is not fog, he is solid. He's the cornerstone of all of our life, unshakable, unmovable, forever and ever, reigning and ruling for all of eternity. Hold on to him, let's pray. before we 
talk to God, I just wonder if you would consider what to do with all this. Yes, it'll take us a couple weeks to get a handle on all the wisdom that's offered. But for now, I wonder if you would just consider what's in your hands. Consider if maybe what is part of the frustration with life is because you're trying to hold really tight to heaven in life. You can't control it, you can't keep it, you can't slow time down and it's crushing you. And there's a goodness to all of that. There's a goodness to pleasure and there's a goodness to work and there's a goodness to money and there's a goodness to family and there's a goodness to wisdom. And yet the only thing that is truly a firm foundation in this world, the only thing that transcends the sun is Jesus our King. And what might wisdom's disruptive voice, even better than that, what might God with his gentle voice be trying to open your hands around? Inviting you to release. That you might have more space in your life to hold more tightly to Jesus. He won't fail you. He's not fog. Help us, Lord. We need you. It is our joy to be your people. It is our joy to know you. Thank you that you have not left us under the sun to wander around in the heaven of life. But you have revealed yourself to us. You've given us strange books that say hard things that we might not waste our life. Help us be faithful in that. We love you. Amen.